You're listening to Extra Textual, the show where we tell stories about movies while the movies tell our stories. Each episode will bring you a special guest who shares a personal story connected to a meaningful film in their life. Then we share some kind of connected story from our own film experiences. And as always, we learn something new about ourselves and others. Welcome to the show. This is Eli Steenledge, and with me as always is... Jeremy Holliday. We're bringing you another great episode this time. We have our special guest with us, Brittany Lee. She has done some spoken word and some live storytelling, and I've heard you a few times do spoken word or tell a story and have been really impressed, and you have a great perspective on things. So we're glad to have you on the show. How are you doing tonight, Britt? I'm good. Thank good. you. Yeah, yeah good. really good. It's been a good day. Good to have you here. So on this episode, we ask our guests what they kind of want to talk about as far as a movie or a TV show or something. And this is the first time we're talking about, with our new format, a TV show miniseries. Yeah. But I think it is very cinematic, I guess. We're talking about the Netflix series, When They See Us about what most people may know as the Central Park Five, which is what the documentary by Ken Burns was called. But now they're usually referred to as the Exonerated Five, I've come to know. But we're talking about mostly the Ava DuVernay miniseries on Netflix. And I'm glad you talked about it because it is something, we were talking about this before the show, but it it's a hard watch. And, yeah. I, and I'll just say, honestly, I don't, personally have a lot of connection to it. So I am not even Mm. someone to necessarily say it's a hard watch because I don't have any of those experiences, to be honest, to connect with it as some people might. But if you kind of know anything about the story, it's kind of hard to watch when you know what's going to happen. But since you want to talk about it, it kind of forced me to sit down and watch it. And And I'm a big fan of Ava DuVernay's work anyways. I think she's a really talented filmmaker. Jeremy and I have been talking about that. But it's good to get a chance to see it. Brittany, what what sort of made you interested in this series? Or when did you first hear about it coming out or their story to get you interested? So I first heard about it over the summer. Mm-hmm. And when it first came out, I actually didn't want to watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that it was going to take a huge amount of emotion that was going to go into watching it. And mm-hmm. I didn't know that I really wanted to be in the space to have to deal with it. So I actually sat in it for probably like three or four weeks. And then I had this thought of how privileged I was to some capacity to feel like I was entitled not to watch it, forgetting that I interact with boys just like on that show every day. Mm -hmm. And also have interacted with many, many men in my life too that have also had that be part of their story and they don't get to escape it. So I chose to watch it and sit down. I actually watched it almost all in one setting Mm -hmm. and took a whole day and then just sat for probably two hours after it. Mm. And the fourth episode got me. (laughs) I cried through the whole core episode. Yeah, it was definitely something that I just knew I had to watch Mm -hmm. um, and couldn't just sit there and act like it wasn't happening around me. But I think part of it too was I knew it was happening around me and then to put it to film Mm-hmm. And to watch it was even just harder mm. um, to just see that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, like I said, if you you know that they these young men spent t- a lot of time in prison for something they didn't yeah. do. And so those first couple episodes are about 
basically them getting taken to the police station and going through the court system and you kind of know what's gonna come about um, mm-hmm. after that so that's that's kind of hard watching it because of that but you work with in a few capacities you know men who um, have been in prison mm-hmm. um, are going through that and then like you said you're doing some mentoring of these these young men or boys as well so you're kind of seeing different sides of that so you have some different connections that way but was there any particular scene or moment in the series that really hit you in a certain way or impacted you right off the bat i mean i think it really impacted me when they had all the the young black boys put in a schoolroom and we're sitting there just like waiting trying to figure out and kind of just asking questions which they were attempting to seem more innocent but actually weren't mm-hmm. i think that's where i that's where I knew that something wasn't right. And it kind of reminds me a lot of a lot of interactions I've had just in life. Um, It reminded me of the first time I got pulled over and uh, I was driving the vehicle. I was in Brooklyn Center, which is right outside the Twin Cities. And it was probably around like 1130 at night and me and my friend had decided we wanted to go to McDonald's. And we were driving and he was trying to give directions and did a terrible job. really bad job and i put on my left blinker but turned right kept driving about two miles later i I had noticed a cop was following us but i didn't think anything of it uh they finally pulled us over and they were like hi you know i pulled you over and i was like i actually have no idea and she had told me it was because i put my left blinker on and turned right and i looked at her and i said you mean like two miles back and she was like, yeah, you had, you had, and I was like, yeah, he's giving me really bad directions. And she was like, where are you going? I'm like, McDonald's. And it was across the street. And she'd asked for my ID. And I was like, of course, um, went and grabbed it in my purse. And then she asked for his ID. And I instantly was like, I looked at her and said, why do you need his ID? And she just looked at me kind of puzzled. And I was like, why do you need his ID? Like, I'm the one who got pulled over for a blinker. Is it because he's black? And she just looked at me kind of frazzled. He looked at me and kind of had this stark, what did you just do moment? And he's like, just give her my ID. And then as she had walked back to the car, I was like, that wasn't cool. Like she should not have pulled us over. And she pulled me over because you're in the car. Like that's not okay. And he's like, I'm not willing to die tonight. And I, and it didn't even, it didn't even like register in my mind that that was a possibility. And this was before all the police shootings. I mean, this was 10 years ago before you really started hearing about them. And watching the show definitely, again, reminded me of that. Like it flashed me back to 10 years ago when I was sitting in a car having that experience. And then as I kept thinking about it, it reminded me of a more recent moment that happened this summer. And I was, we were driving downtown and I was kind of giving my friend crap for driving and speeding because we all speed, but I was like, we're downtown, don't speed. And of course, Not even like four minutes later, we get pulled over um, right in front of Camp Randall where that intersection is. There's five different roads that go into it. And I was like, oh no. And it was the first time that I'd ever gotten pulled over and a black man was driving and my heart hit the floor. And he grabbed his his insurance card and I sat there and was like, oh my gosh, okay, what are we gonna do? Because this is after I'd watched um, The Hate You Give which had also just flashed me back to more moments. And the cop had come up and said, hey, I pulled you over for speeding. And we're like, okay, we understand. 
he gave his card and then at that moment he'd rolled down he'd already rolled down all the windows opened his sunroof and at this point had his hands out the car and i'd never seen that and here i was sitting with my hands in my lap realizing how privileged i was again as a biracial person but appearing light-skinned it didn't dawn on me to think i had to put my hands out the window either and he just kept looking at me like don't freak out don't freak out and i was sitting there thinking like dear lord please don't shoot him and that's all i kept thinking because i was watching this cop in my rearview mirror with his hand on his gun and i was just like this could go so bad i have no idea what's gonna happen and i was just just praying nonstop, trying to keep a calm face and then he ended up getting um he ended up getting a, a ticket i think at that point and then we sat in the car, drove home back to my house, and we didn't talk the entire way. And when we got back, he looked at me and was like, I didn't expect that out of you. And because here I didn't realize he was also someone from the inner city and had been grown up his entire life as a black man who'd had this interaction multiple times. It became very clear to me. And I just looked at him and I was like, I was just praying that you weren't, you weren't going to get shot or something wasn't going to happen or you weren't going to get pulled out of the car. And then here I thought that would hopefully be my last interaction with the police for the summer. And then fast forward even more, like as I was seeing the when they see us, here are five young, young black boys who are all getting incarcerated for something they didn't do. Meanwhile, I work and consult with an organization called Train to Grow, um, who Felix Gimene, he's the founder and uh, chief change officer is what he goes by. And he works predominantly with 14 to 18 year old youth. And right now it's predominantly with black, uh, black young men. And I'd gotten a call. I was at work. It was a normal day, just like any other. It was about one o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday. And one of the boys had called me and was like, we need you to come to the BP right now. I was like, which one? And I kept thinking they were talking about the one by my house. And they were like, no, no, no. We're at the one over by the mall. And I was like, okay what's going on? What's going on? He's like, you need to come to the BP right now and hung up the phone. And instantly I was like, what is happening? And I looked at my cork and I was like, I have to go. I have to go. And I got in this panic mode. I probably broke a couple laws, probably sped a little bit too much going on the belt line. As I'm getting off on the exit, I see about six marked cars and about four others roughly that were unmarked. I was like, what is happening? I didn't see them. I finally pulled up to where the BP is and I'm still not seeing them. All I see is all these cop cars. I'm just panicking because I I don't see the car they were in. I don't see them. So I call one of them and I'm like, where are you? And they're like, we're back at the house. I'm like, okay, I'm coming to you right now. And I pull up to them and I'm like, what's going on? And you can tell like they had just been through something terrible. And I was like, what happened? What happened? And they were like, all we, we were sitting at the BP for two minutes and the next thing we know, like we were surrounded by all these police officers being yelled to get out of the car, guns were pulled out. And here's a 16 and 17 year old boy who both were pulled out of their car. One has sickle cell, so like he was freezing and he kept asking the officer, I guess, to, for a coat and they wouldn't give him a coat. And reluctantly after 10 minutes, they get, like let him put his coat on and they had searched the entire car, accused him that they had smelt weed, all these other things. And they said they were looking for one of their friends. So my instant question is, well, did they open the trunk? No, they didn't look in the trunk. That's the most likely place that a person would be if you're trying to hide them. So they were like, no, we just, all these guns were pulled on us. And you could just tell like they were in just this heavy moment of never having to experience that. And I've never had a gun pulled on me. 
So I didn't know how that could feel or what that would feel like, but I couldn't imagine what it felt like as two young black males in Madison, which is known for its disparities against black people, period, to then be in a public place and being like, this could be the end. They didn't understand it. And as we were driving back, I had to pick up a sister to, to go and get her car back to take them back, uh, take her back home. On the way back from me running an errand, I had to run an errand from work and I'm sitting in the car knowing they went through all this trauma, but instantly went into, I have to tell you what could happen next. And it reminded me, and I literally referenced the show when they see us and I was like, what they could do next is pull you in rooms and convince you guys to basically come up with all these lies and you guys have to be ready to say nothing. Even when it feels like you could say so much to save yourself or save each other, like you can't. And as they're dealing with trauma, I'm like preparing them for the worst thing that could happen in their life. And I think that's been an extremely humbling moment to be in. It's been really hard to sit here and know that at any point in time I could get a phone call, that at any point in time um, something could happen. I mean, there was that happened on a Thursday, that Sunday. I think, I don't know if you remember, there was a shooting that happened on Raymond. And I actually was going to pick up the boys. I had called one of them and kept telling him, like, no, 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 stay at the house. He was literally around the corner. Stay at your house. Then I heard the gunshots. And my heart hit the floor thinking, oh my God, it, they could have shot him. Like, that's literally like, and I was calling him panicking and he wasn't answering the phone. And I was like, why isn't he answering the phone? And finally, after like two minutes of call, like he answered the phone and I was like, this huge sigh of relief came over me because I was, it just, again, brought me back to the show. It's like, your skin color is viewed as a weapon. And at any point in time, I could get a phone call for these kids who literally like to play Uno and geek around and listen to Lost Boy or sometimes rap music too. <laughs> but all these fun interactions we've had with them with going to the haunted house or doing all these things could in an instant, because somebody views them as a threat, just be over. This show has been a constant reminder of remembering kind of where we're at in the world. And it's a really sad place to be to also realize, too, that I have to consistently remind all of my friends, too, who've never interacted or never, like, they see it as a TV show. Not realizing that, like, I could have to call my roommate and be like, hey, um, we have to go down and deal with this situation. Or my friends having to kind of move around their lives so that at any moment I may have to leave to go and deal with the situation that involves police or to feel like I have to protect them on top of the situation with um, ending up with a whole police with them getting pulled on guns. One of the kids also got arrested that day for literally walking, had no idea what he was getting arrested for, got picked up, taken down, interrogated for something he was totally confused about, and then got dropped back off. And then the cops were like, oh, sorry, we made it like we think we got the wrong person. And again, just these constant things of like at any moment in time, any day that I could get a phone call, probably right now could happen and have to go deal with the situation is really hard to think about. Like it's not just a TV show. Like that's real life. It happens every day all the time. Mm -hmm. I think reminds me of a few things, but I think this episode when we talked about the subject matter was sort of hard for me at least because I, w what we normally try to do is we relate like a story like Jeremy and I to the topic or the film or something related. And I really don't have a connection, like I said to this, mm. but I do know 
uh, I'm white and I grew up in in a privilege basically in geographical areas where I don't have to deal with that in neighborhoods where it's not normal but just that last thing you mentioned about the young boy being taken in not knowing what it was for and then just being like dropped off like if that was to be honest a white kid in the neighborhoods I'm from the cops would be getting sued they would be like those parents would be in there so angry about the way their kid was treated like that would not fly in any way right Um, and it's it, it sort of baffles me that that is the world also that mm-hmm. some people can be and they can get away with it. You know, it's not bothered. Yeah, we no. discussed that actually after it happened when the boys had gotten guns pulled on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, his mom had talked about filing a complaint mm-hmm. and I was like, OK, we can write up a complaint. But if I'm being honest with you, nothing's going to happen. Gonna happen. Yeah. Like I can think of all the legal justifying reasons they will come up with that this was OK. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing is they were looking for another 16 year old boy. Mm. That's what they were doing. They right. they they stretched out. So like that's right. what we call it. They stretched out and pulled out guys, two kids from their car, looking for another kid that is not a threat. I mean, mm. none of the kids had guns or weapons or any reason that they needed to have guns pulled on them mm. by that many police officers and have that much trauma in their lives as a child, mm-hmm. looking for another child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it also reminded me in the series, and and for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, this is towards the beginning and sort of well-known in history, but they uh, the police come up with this a concept of like wilding, mm-hmm. which was some random thing they thought they heard or they made up in, com- in combination with that. Yeah. Of like, they now probably call yeah. it thugging. Right. Um, but yeah, terms. wilding, yeah. yeah, it's just like going out, just doing reckless things, like mm-hmm. beating people up or yeah. just being, just kind of being obnoxious. It, right. That's really what they had come up with, which they had mm-hmm. used a lot in the show to like basically yeah. create this fear. Right, the fear around what mm-hmm. they're doing. And and those were the big headlines um, they talked about that how it was perceived by right. the media of what these kids were doing when really they were just going out and having fun in a group. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of what these boys were doing at a gas station or whatever. Like they just happened to be in a group, which... Lots of teenagers do, but we're treated much differently than, again, probably a group of white kids hanging out, you know? Yeah, Yeah. there's definitely a different perception of what people think that young black boys are doing in our community as a group versus a group of white kids. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there was two of them. It wasn't even a group of them. Mm. That's what's crazy. It was was two of them. them. And I mean, if you saw these two boys, I mean, they're... The one is probably five foot three, five foot four, maybe 75, 85 pounds. <laughs> and the other one is probably five, seven, probably maybe 110 pounds. Like they're not intimidating kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, one of the things that like really struck me in uh, When They See Us was, and I, I don't know if this was a deliberate like casting choice, but the guy who plays Kevin, like the youngest kid, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was just so striking. That's what one of my he's kids small, looks like. Yeah. Well, it was so Literally, stri- that's what he, like he's, that's him. Yeah, it was so striking for me to see the police officers just like, I mean, without missing a beat, like convinced that this 14-year-old kid who's what, 5'3"? Five, five, right, like, very small. Like was, the, like was holding this grown woman down and raping mm-hmm. her while the other, I mean, I was like, 
that guy? Mm-hmm. Right. That guy. <laughs> that guy, yeah. That guy. That's yeah. the one. Right. Right. Um, and I mean, and, and I think she did such a good job with the show because we see all of them that go about their day before they go. We see a little bit of what mm-hmm. Kevin, we see a little bit mm-hmm. of who they are before they end up, you know. Right. Uh, and she also shows us the real story of what happens. Like they, they see some stuff, Kevin gets it with a helmet, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But I mean, she goes out of her way, like the way they describe them as animals. Right. Like the, just, yeah. I mean, the way that they're like, they don't, and it seems clear. Right. That the police officers and the blonde prosecutor woman, I don't remember, mm-hmm. letter, I think. I can't never remember her name. Um, like, they, they never they never view them as people. Like, they're at no point people, no. Let, let alone children. No, right? there was no human dignity given to them in that show. They were not viewed as humans at all. And I think that's the one thing, like, like you said, animals and... You have someone like Trump who's like, we want the death penalty. And I'm thinking, like, these are 14, Kids. 15, and 16-year-old yeah. boys. Mm-hmm. And, like... Who, at that point, they haven't even been convicted. Not even... No, they weren't no. convicted. And there was so much ambiguity in the case. Like, mm-hmm. when they found... Which we kind of talked about a little bit before. Like, when they found the sperm, which matched none of them. There was DNA over everything, but matched none of them. Oh, there's a sixth person. There's another person that was there. And it's like... No, this should tell you there was one person that did all this and it wasn't any of them. Mm-hmm. And the fact that none of the boys' stories really lined up at all and none of them seemed to have the character even to, to display that that was something that they want, like that they did. Mm-hmm. Like one of the boys, I think, in the show, which also kind of fascinated me, was like he had asked, like, do you know what, what rape was? And he was kind of confused by the question. He's like, I think it's when you like do something of sexual nature that's against someone's will. Like he really didn't under, like half of them didn't even understand the words that were being used against them and that they were being accused of. Um, One of the other moments that really hit me was when one of the kids, I think it's the youngest one, I think it was Kevin, when he's in court and he just knows like it's over. Hmm. And his lawyer's like, no, 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 it's not. And he just had this moment where he's like, no, like this is it. Like they're really, they really want to get me. Like it doesn't matter. And I think the other thing really that just is something that's very true is like uh the prosecutor says it and she goes this isn't about justice this isn't about the truth this is about politics this is and that's really that is the truth it is all about not seeking truth and justice it's about proving a point keeping up your stats and making things look like we're protecting the public when really what we're creating is fear that's unnecessary like we're creating fear of people mm-hmm. based on their skin color simply out of fear because that's what we want to do and because it makes some people feel better and they think they can sleep better at night because they got a conviction instead of realizing years later like you've watched all these boys go through all these things they've consistently i mean they went to prison for the second worst crime next to like child molestation and rape they went for sexual assault like none of them mm-hmm. had an easy easy right. route and i mean Cory Booker got it the worst. He went at the age of 16 to Rikers. And I mean, we do that in the state of Wisconsin. At the age of 17, you're tried as an adult. I mean, I had to go to court with one of the kids this past week. And I'm just looking at him having to speak to a judge and just being like, he did a great job, but you could just tell like, this isn't right. This doesn't make sense. Like I'm having to explain after attending four years at a university for studying legal studies and criminal justice, and then knowing and studying and reading tons of things still trying to figure it out, to now and explain it to a 17-year-old child how to navigate a system that is literally built to take him down. Mm-hmm. That's a hard place to be. And then we wonder why people aren't 
being successful, we wonder why a lot of these kids don't want to interact with police officers, Mm -hmm. why they don't want to have any respect for them. And it's like, they literally think you're out to get them. Mm -hmm. They don't think you have their best interests. They don't think you want to seek the truth. And they literally feel like, how do you prove that you weren't somewhere when you're not thinking of an alibi 24 seven? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I know a couple of the guys we work with that do reentry work often talk about how people just say like, oh, we need to reform the system and stuff, which they would agree with. But they also <laughs> say, well, the system's working the way that they want it to. It is. It is. Prison. Because yeah. it is putting the people in prison that they want in prison and to kind of keep off the streets in a sense um, mm-hmm. is how they view. And it's working just perfect. Right. Um, and that's and that goes way back to, you know, this was 1989 and probably goes back further, but that's, uh, I don't know that a lot has changed. No, I don't, I mean, the system is literally created to create what it's creating. Mm -hmm. And you look at someone like Cory Booker, and if anyone has watched the the Oprah interview that came after, you actually get to see Cory Booker in real life, and you can tell that his life is very different. I mean, when you put Mm -hmm. someone in a solitary, you put someone in solitary for that long, you start at some point, you got to ask the question of like, what are we creating? Yeah. Like most people, I think the stats are somewhere around like 90% of people that go into prison are going to come out. And you have to ask the question of how are people going to operate when the rules that exist in those four walls are so different than when people come out? I mean, it kind of makes me think of a story when I, so I do housing at Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. and we went into one of the houses and man it just stunk and i couldn't figure out why the apartment was reeking and i went in and looked at the shelf and i was like why is all this molding food here like ew so i went to one of the guys and i was like hey hey man like what's going on with this food and he's like oh that's so and so who used to live here and i was like the dude that moved out like a month ago and instantly in my mind i was like oh that's a rule from prison you don't touch somebody else's stuff and i literally was like you can get rid of it but then you you take people out of prison, but then you have to take the prison out of them. And that is a thing that for most people isn't ever going to happen. Like, I mean, you have people that we work with who still will say, like, I still function by some of those rules because, like, that's what I've been conditioned to think about. And, like, that's not the way the world functions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think the system does exactly what it's doing. I think, I mean, when you look at the system of, wisconsin i mean when you go to any most of the dorms those are all built by prisoners mm. when we were at uw parkside over the summer like prisoners built the beds that we were on they don't give you fitted sheets so you have to tie them just like you would if you were incarcerated mm. you the food is pretty close to what prison food was like <laughs> and you have a lot of these things that we realize like it's cheap labor so if we can commit mm-hmm. crimes i mean the 13th amendment has allowed us to do a lot of things and we need people to keep doing it so the people who are going to lock up that most people don't have the capacity to really defend mm-hmm. are black people because of the way that we've built this system and the way that poverty and slavery and all these other things have disenfranchised so much of people of color in our society. Uh, Brittany, you and I uh, this last week actually got to meet Yusef Salam in yes. person. And uh, who is one of the exonerated five. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I was taken back by how positive he is Mm -hmm. for what he went through. I think he personally spent 13 years in prison, Yeah, is what he said. But 
Yeah, I mean, some of the things he said was amazing, and he was very inspirational, actually, taking what he went through and kind of shifting that to inspire other people and talk about his experiences. And I think that is a big thing, what we're talking about, that he's still warning people about the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. especially youth of color, that this is still a danger that they that they face every day of dealing with um, our systems, dealing with the police, and, and how they're treated in America just because of the color of their skin. I mean, you, you have to believe it from someone like that. And mm-hmm. then after watching this, this mini-series of what he goes through, but anything that stuck out to you that, from what he said? Yeah, so there was a lot. I think, honestly, when I was sitting there listening to a lot of it, so... Felix and I both from Train to Grow, we brought mm. four of the boys that we work with right. that yeah. were able to come. And I honestly was like, I wonder what they're thinking about all these things that are being said. And I think the question that he had asked um, when he had first gotten incarcerated, I think he'd been in for about six months, he said at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And one of the guards had asked him who he was. And mm-hmm. he had said, I'm like, I'm Yusuf Salam. I was one of the guys who's accused of um, raping this woman and almost killing her, and the guard repeated to him, I actually knew that about you, but I want to know who are you? Mm-hmm. And then he sought on this journey to figure out what his name meant. I think when he sat there, or when he stood, I guess, and talked about his whole story, it was just, yeah, it was crazy to me, too, how positive he was. He talked about a lot of the blessings that he'd been given, but mm-hmm. also just realizing that his whole life of now has been built on the pain that he went through. Like he goes around and is talking about literally the fact that his childhood was taken away and kind of helping and hoping to get to people to understand like this is a real problem Mm -hmm. and it's going to take people to like really start doing something about it. And we can't just keep acting like this is the norm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was just like me thinking, I was like, I wonder what the kid next to me is thinking. I really Mm -hmm. wanted to hear like his perspective of like, how is this hearing about somebody else? That literally went through the system and here you are at the beginning mm-hmm. of your life. Because all of them kept being like, we would never do that. That would mm-hmm. never happen to us. And I'm like, I don't think they thought it would happen to them either. Yeah, for sure. A lot of the boys changed their mind once I told them like they had been sitting in a room being interrogated without going to the bathroom, without having food, without having anyone but a police officer basically yelling at them for hours and hours and hours. And at some point like... You just change. But yeah, Yusuf, mm-hmm. I think, was really inspiring. He actually ended up taking a picture with all the kids, so that was really cool. Nice. And yeah, I think it was just, it was a very humbling experience for me, I think, just to sit here and watch this man, after all he'd gone through, just still stand up and and live his life. Like, didn't let it break him. Mm-hmm. I think that's what was really inspiring to mm-hmm. me. It's like, yeah. to him, it was like, it's just, it's another day. You take every day as you get it, and then you just keep doing whatever you can to do your best. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really something to think about. Like every day you just do it. You do what you can. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The who I my question, I think is really important to figure out. It was interesting. I got to sit down with him for another podcast and I had noticed that when we first met him, he had a large medallion, like mm-hmm. metal medallion on a chain around his neck. And he had a large ring with the same sort of symbols on it. I thought maybe, I think he he is sort of religious. He talked about his faith, so mm-hmm. I didn't know if it had something to do with that. Um, but then towards the end of the talk, he, he did mention that he had done some 
like metal work and jewelry work and stuff before he went to prison mm-hmm. and uh, learned some of that. And so he made those while he was in prison kind of as a reminder of what he was going through and was still wearing those. But I thought that was really interesting sort of way to always sort of hold on to that experience right. and still embrace it was pretty cool experience for that because I had been wondering when he was wearing those because they were so unique yeah I thought it was interesting that he talked a lot about how he was taken out of society Mm -hmm. and then being put in prison it actually allowed him to figure out who he really was Mm -hmm. because he didn't have all these other things like cool clothing or a fancy job or all these things he literally just had him and talking about his Julia as a reminder of being like, this is the part in my life, too, where I got to figure out who I was. So when I came out, I was ready for whatever was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting that he really talked about kind of as like this like building place for him. Like how Batman was like in the <laughs> cave and would like was sitting there like building himself up and then was like unleashed and like mm-hmm. to see the man that he is now and just going around and speaking about it and then using his past pain to be like you know it was terrible i was blessed a lot of the way i definitely he talked about that getting special goodies and other things mm-hmm. and then using that to be like but i still was strong in that like mm-hmm. even when he, he had mentioned um speaking at his hearing which you don't actually see in when they see us is at his hearing he basically did this whole poem where he basically yeah. said like F you to all of you. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm never going to admit that this was me because it wasn't. And he was one of the only ones who also didn't speak. All the other ones had, like, said they did something or some part of it. And Yusuf was the only one who actually didn't really speak to the police officers Mm -hmm. um, or the detectives. And to watch how even in his silence, he was taken down, too. And, like, watching that happen, too, brought me back to reminding the boys, like, all of you have to stick together and say nothing. Not one of you can say something. Um... It's definitely been, it's been a lot to think about that show. It's come up a lot of times since I've watched it, just interacting with these teenage boys in our, in our community. Mm -hmm. One of the parts that I really liked about the show too is it's a Kevin again, it's at the end of the first episode and it's when they're in like the, like the white room or holding cell after they've Mm -hmm. all given their stories and they're just sitting there and then Kevin says like, I don't, I, I don't remember which one it was too, but he says to one of the guys like, Hey man, like. I lied on you. And mm-hmm. and then it, like, it prompts them all to admit that they had lied to one another mm-hmm. or lied on one another. Um, and I mean, there's a, I mean, like, I mean, I, like Eli was saying, like, uh, he would say that it's not like it's, it's hard for him to relate to, to part of the story. Um, but I mean, I didn't have the, I had a slightly different reaction. But the thing that I kept thinking was like, what are these, what are these people doing? Like, what are these police officers doing? Like, how is any, I mean, like, they are deliberately how is this allowed? Yeah. doing it, like, they're deliberately manufacturing all of this. And, and, and I know that, like, there's at least some patina or, like, you know, coverage said to, like, well, like, we're sure that they did it. We're just, like, cutting through all the crap to have them say they did it. I mean, and the other part of it, too, which is referenced in the show, which I don't know a whole lot about, is, like, it was a clear technique, like it's not that this is not the first time they did this. They're no. not the first generation of police officers to do this. No. They were trained how to do it. Like mm-hmm. this is a clear thing that has been done for a long time for a lot of people that they are well yeah. well practiced at. Um, and I'm just, and I've heard enough stories in my life of uh, people on shows or like 
people that I've known where like evidence gets planted. People mm-hmm. make shit up. Right? You know? <laughs> yeah. And it's it's like like for me, like if if I'm looking in this in this story of like who who do I relate to? Me, I'm like I'm like that black haired female uh prosecutor, mm-hmm. I think, who's who is- like who's like let her like what are you doing? Right, right? The, the the reason of morality. Like she was yeah, the one who was yeah. like, "Wait, this isn't really what's happening. Why are we making these things up?" Right. But I think it goes back to, you know, but the part though that like, so if I think about something to relate to, I'm like that black haired prosecutor. Don't remember her name. Like, sure, she, you know, 13 years later, she pulls out her books and throws them on the table and like takes her down. But like, she let it happen too. Yeah. So did everyone else in that office, she, she in that police department. Easily. There were like hundreds of white people, right? Looking mm-hmm. around being like, oh gosh, wringing their hands like, oh, those those rascals down at the precinct. You know, like, and that's part of like, I think right. what, as a white person, when I watch it and I see, it's like, no, 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 no. Like, those of us that see it, we got to stop that shit. Yeah, I think. certainly <laughs> the kids and their parents did their best, right? Yeah, yeah I think. But I think you get into two different dichotomies, which is something Eli and I were talking about previous, like earlier today, which was like, you get into this one of like, you have white people who are watching things happen and do nothing. And they see it, but like their own self-preservation comes into kick where it's like, I can't do the right thing. Or this is just like, if it's not now, it's going to be some other time. Like these kids are guilty of something. We just don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Or you get this other end of the spectrum, which is like, you have a lot of white people who are going around thinking they're white saviors. And you get that complex where it's like, oh, now we need to save all the little black kids and do all these things instead of being like, we need to empower the people to be able to do what they need to do. And I think that's where I've seen a lot of the the conflict of like, I wish I could sit here and tell you it shocked me that the police officers and the detectives did that. But like, honestly, when I saw it happening, I was like, yeah, this is every day. Only because I've seen it. I've just seen the way that the court systems work. So I think about, I was on court, um, in court on Monday with one of my boys and the ADA. So mind you, he missed one of his court, his first court because of some like, like there was some just like issue with like him not understanding his court date. Again, asking a minor who's 17 to be responsible. He didn't get the letter, I guess, to his house or whatever and didn't know he could look him up online. So... I figured out, I found out he has an arrest warrant and I'm telling him, you don't turn yourself in. You've got to contact your lawyer. Whatever you do, your lawyer is the one who needs to contact so we can not, I don't want you to get incarcerated. Mm-hmm. If you go in now, you're going to be locked up and you could be locked up to your next court date. Again, something he didn't know, I had to show up at like 10 o'clock yeah. at night being like, you have to stay in the house. You can't get arrested. To then now having his newest court date, which is with a whole different case, which happened, they actually did press charges against him for something and it wasn't, it was for um, potentially a stolen car, which is he wasn't there. We have video, all these other things um, that shows that he wasn't actually. We show him in a completely different place, but mm-hmm. you know you have to wait for the process. So he's in court, and the ADA is like, okay, we want a two hundred and fifty dollar bond. We want him to have a GPS monitor. He can't leave Dane County without written consent. He can't be in a, a moving motorized vehicle without written consent from the driver. Um, we need like all these extra rules and I'm just sitting here like for what? Like he's shown up to every mm-hmm. court date since then. He's been fine. He's in court speaking on behalf of himself. His lawyer has not shown up because it's initial appearance. And thankfully it was the first time I looked at the, like the judge was like, I don't think that any of that's necessary. 
Mm-hmm. Like he has a mentor who's like he has a mentor. He said he's gonna show up to court. He's gonna he seems to be doing fine. He's mm-hmm. here. So yeah. you sit here and you go, what's what's the reason the ADA is going so hard? Well, it's really simple. Here's a seventeen year old black male. We've had about two hundred and fifty to three hundred and thirty car thefts just in the month of October. There's he he clearly did something. So like that's how they view it. And like I think when you sit here and go like why aren't people doing it? And it's because people are selfish. And I say it a lot, people suck. And like sometimes it's just that simple. And I think when you watch the show, it's like this ADA wanted to make a name for herself. There was mm-hmm. no other reason than like yeah. this horrible situation happened. We actually don't know what to do with it, but we need to convict someone. And if we, even if we foster a story, even if we give up somebody else's lives, because the reality is what are really the consequences? She's going to lose her job down the line. She's not, I mean, she's not going to get incarcerated. People aren't, it's not going to happen. She's not going to be the one to pay millions of dollars to all these kids who've, you know, been incarcerated for 15 years and no, like, and not to mention everything that happened. Like there is no consequences. That's why people do it. There's no accountability really that can make up for someone going to prison for something they didn't do as a child. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all like, we can sit here and blur the lines, but Cory Booker more than likely was sexually assaulted multiple times being mm-hmm. in Rikers at the age of 16. Yeah. What, what repercussions do you do for an ADA who's, who is part of the reason he got sent there? Yeah. Right. And he was, he literally got there because he wanted to be a good friend. Mm-hmm. He was scared of the consequences of not showing up for one of his friends, which I understand because yeah. working in working with five teenage boys, they do everything together. Yeah, everything. They're their the... own little their own little family, and if it doesn't matter if they're mad at each other, whatever happens, like if something happens, any one of them will try and figure it out to help each other out. Or someone will call me like I got called when my when one of the kids was in the back of a squad car to be like, we don't know, like we need to do something. And you know, you have all these adults who are trying to navigate a system that is unfair. And sitting here also being like, I mean, on Monday morning, I was sitting here like, you might be incarcerated for the next two months, even though you're doing everything you can, even though you're showing up and you're trying to do your best. Like, Mm -hmm. that may not be what happens. Like, it was a miracle that he didn't. I think it's because everyone that I know, right? (laughs) But like, that he got out on a signature bond and is fine and is able to like, still live as a kid, at least for the next couple months until his next court date. And I think... You ask the question of like, at what point are people going to do anything? And I think the reality is, is until we actually have real consequences, like until we don't have a max on what people can sue the county for, for doing things wrong. I mean, you can't, you can't pay back that time, you know, like money. They've said all that in the Oprah show. Like there isn't enough money. I think that Mm -hmm. could really undo what's been done. So if people are doing things and they don't have any consequences for their actions and there's no real accountability like mm-hmm. for all the cop cars like pulling guns on the kids I know like what what's going to stop people like where there yeah. isn't yeah yeah here's like my dilemma I had recently um so mm. my wife and I we have three kids and uh, it's very rare but they went to their grandmother's house overnight so it was the next day and we were going to pick them up again that day but we had a little bit of time Rare, we were just like relaxing, sitting on the couch together, talking. Hardly ever happens like in that quiet. Um, And so we were talking a little while and then my wife was like, oh, I think you need to go pick up the kids. It's time to go get them. 
So I like got up, put it, put on my shoes by the front door, was getting my jacket, and I happened right. to see out our front door, the window, and a car like pulled up. Our driveway is like right next to our neighbor's driveway, almost the same driveway. And they pulled in kind of both of our driveways, and I was kind of like, I don't know that car, kind of pulling in. And then they just like backed up. They were just pulling in to like turn around. And then I, I did happen to notice, oh, it's two black women in the car. Honestly, I did say there are no black women that live on our street. <laughs> Not in a negative way. I was just like, I, mean, I, I don't, I don't recognize those people. So they turned around, and I just continued to get my coat on and stuff, and then was talking to my wife, and I heard some like loud banging noise. Boom, boom, boom. And I was like, oh, is someone like chopping wood? That's weird. Such a Um, white thing to think is someone chopping wood. (laughs) We have people that have fireplaces on our Yeah. Our neighbor does have a stack of wood in their backyard. That's funny. So I went and we have like a big front window. So I went and like looked out the window, just curious. I was like, what's that noise? And then saw somebody, the next house over next to us um, on the street. I like started to realize there was a car pulled up in the middle of the street. And a young woman was like, had a baseball bat and was smashing the windshield in on this car. Mm-hmm. And so our neighbor's car, one of their cars was parked on the street and it was the one in front of it. And so I was kind of like, oh, I don't recognize that car for sure. Mm-hmm. That's getting um, beat up. And I did kind of think, oh, I think that's the woman I saw just pull and turn around. Mm-hmm. And then by this time, my wife was like looking too and she's like, we should call the police. And so a few things that went through my mind, all right, I guess we should do that. Um, and then I was did cross my mind, oh, I, I had already had my phone in my hand uh, just naturally. And I was like, oh, should I videotape this so they know what happened? And then so these things started running through my mind. And then I was like, OK, I'll call the police to let them know what's going on. And I think they were like wrapping up basically, by then, like getting back in their car to leave. So I wasn't feeling too threatened. And uh, so I decided to call the police. But then I started thinking, you know, I did see pretty clearly who the one I mean I didn't I don't know who she is but I I could have a clear description mm-hmm. but I it started after some of these experience and I had just that week been watching when they see us for instance and so it did start to make me think more okay what are the consequences of me saying this was somebody's skin color that did this in a neighborhood probably where they were not from mm-hmm. necessarily what what happens with that? So I did end up deciding and told them that I did not see the person clearly. I said it was a woman, but I, I mm-hmm. said I don't know what they look like. And so I I don't know. I don't know what you guys think, but it, it was something I wasn't sure how to deal with. Our neighbor across the street, they have a, like a, a daughter in junior high, and she happened to probably see it about the same time I did. Mm-hmm. and was really like shaken up by it because she didn't know i quickly what i should mention is realized also that this is this was not a car that was normally on our street it wasn't somebody just randomly coming and like smashing cars on our street right. I quickly it was realized, probably intentional yeah it was probably a boyfriend or something um possibly someone they knew that they were mad at so i, I that kind of settled me down as far as like what's going on on our street mm-hmm. i was like this is pinpointed not somebody you know related to who I know so wasn't as worried about that and I think part of it was I do think that would be handled differently I'm not trying to downplay like crimes or um, what people do 
But if that was, let's say the case is it was a boyfriend that they were angry at. If that was a young white woman, I don't think she would be treated the same as a young black woman. What do you guys think? As far as in that same case. I I, I don't know, Eli. I mean, I don't... I... There's a lot of unknowns. This is like in there. such. I mean, it's like such a white problem. Right. Um. Right. That I mean, I don't even know. Like, I've not been in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know. It's like, even calling the police, it's like if I trusted that they would like do a good job, mm-hmm. I wouldn't feel bad about calling them. Mm-hmm. But I don't. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, gosh, yeah. I, I'm not like. I. I oh, man. I mean, I just feel like there's. You call the police mm-hmm. and some uh, and somebody that or something similar to that. Like you're calling in like all this stuff mm-hmm. that like you know it at, like when I grew up you know like you know like in school we were taught you know like the police are there to help you and they're yeah. your friends and it's just real simple. They're like firefighters and they're like soldiers and all you know like these right. great American mm-hmm. heroes. Um, and you know like I, I've no I have police officers who are my friends. Like I know people mm-hmm. that I felt like have done a Same. good job, but like. As a whole, I, I you know, like I don't like if I don't know them, which I don't. Right. I'm like I, I don't have faith that I'm not putting something in motion that's going to cause a lot more damage than is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. like you know, as like you know, I mean, I don't even know how to. Like as a white person, I'm like I don't I don't want to call the police. Like I don't like I don't want. Yeah, right. I mean, that was my initial yeah. thing. I was like, I don't really want to talk to the police about this. Right, but the, the other part too is like, I mean, I mean, I don't like. I would not like it if someone smashed my car, even mm-hmm. if I right. deserved it. You know, <laughs> yeah, for, yeah. I mean, for whatever that happens to be. Um, and I'm a, like a you know like a by the book sort of rule following person. I think I don't sure. think you should smash people's cars. Like they should work <laughs> out. Um, but it's just like I mean I don't know, I feel so whiny about it. But they're just like that. There doesn't make a good option. But because I definitely know like I don't know if you do next door around here that like online community. No, we don't do that in my neighborhood. Um, <laughs> maybe it's, maybe it's I mean, I know like my neighbors watch, within reason. Was that like a neighborhood watch? Type thing? Yeah, no. But I mean, yeah. the next door, like the online. No. Community. Anyway, I mean, because no. like when when like a black person is around and seen doing something, it's like people talk about it. Yeah, you know, I like, mean, I've like, seen that happen in Facebook groups. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I live in a neighborhood that there are tons of people of color, and I intentionally live in this neighborhood for that reason. Mm-hmm. Though all the people in my building, with the exception of me and my neighbor's daughter, are they're they're white, um, but it's only four units. But I mean, I think in that situation, that's a tough one, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you see someone doing a crime, do you call the police? Yeah, I don't know what I. I mean, to yeah. be honest, I I don't know that I would have called. But mm-hmm. I think it's also the point of like how much do you want to insert yourself, right? So like, right. I've had to call the police in a couple of different situations, like. Being a college student when I lived outside the nitty gritty, was walking my apartment and then watched these guys stomp out a guy in the back of a of a back of a taxi cab and then start attacking the, the cab driver. Mm-hmm. Let's be real. If it wasn't me, it was gonna be somebody else. I also know that I'm really good at like giving statements because I view them without <laughs> emotions and I've been trained on how to do that. Yeah. I will tell you that when it comes to housing, I generally never call the police. The only time I have is when I got a police escort because I had two white males that were in an apartment and I knew mm-hmm. I could call the police and feel like it wasn't going to be an issue. Yeah. 
I think there is something to be said, though. Uh, if you've ever seen the show, I'm going to bring up another show, uh, Dear White People, which is also a Netflix yeah, series. Yeah, we've talked about and it. I was a- going to mention it, but I <laughs> but there is a point in that show where they talk about like you calling the police, especially if the person's black, in some ways is asking for a death threat. Like it's mm-hmm. and, it, and it can be viewed that way. I've seen it in our housing where uh, I've seen some of the white guys know that they can call the police on one of the other black males and know that it's going to be interpreted differently. And I'm not a huge fan of calling the police, but it's not because I, I'm anti-police. I think of a lot of situations in my personal life where, like, I could have gotten someone locked up for a significant amount of time, but to me, I knew I'd be okay. And mm-hmm. by calling the police, I knew that what was going to happen to them would be significantly worse than what they probably deserved. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where I'm at as far mm-hmm. as, like, interacting with the police. Also, yeah. just knowing, like, they're trained to think a certain way. And unless you really understand the training, like they operate in the way in which they are trained. And there isn't a lot of like rogueness. Like they they can pretty much protect themselves. I mean, they're able to shoot people unarmed in the back and still not face crime for it. Mm-hmm. Like face time yeah. or face some type of criminal charges. So yeah, I think, I mean, in your situation, would I have called the police? I don't know. I probably would have just been like, oh, whatever he did, he probably deserves it. Like, I mean, yeah. it takes a lot for two people to pull up in a neighborhood they've never been in and All take right. a bat to somebody's car. Like, I would yeah. assume that, like, something happened. But I think that goes back to the question of, like, what's our responsibility as citizens? Like, are we obligated to report something? Because the I question mean, is, would yeah. you have done it if it had not been that situation but another situation that you had seen that someone's committing a crime and it's like like if you're in target and you see someone stealing do you report it mm-hmm. do you not report it like i think it depends on like the level two of how you interact but i think it's interesting too that you bring up the fact that they were like two black women and that is also something that like reflected your decision yeah. of knowing how the system will most likely treat them mm-hmm. which i mean what's that other major case that happened with the school like the the black mother who like sent her kid to a school out of her district sent was got what five years in prison and then you have the actress who right. got like no time at all for like blatantly else. doing something wrong for college. Right. Like we know the system doesn't treat people fairly, so I think I don't know. I don't think it's unreasonable. Yeah, I mean, part of it was too like I, I virtually know everyone on our street, and this was our next door neighbor. So I think part of some right. of it in my mind was well, it's right, it's. I don't think they were home, so I mm. didn't know what was going on. So I like later I also didn't want to be like talking to my neighbors and be like, Yeah, I saw it happen. Didn't really Well let's be real didn't really your do neighbor anything about probably it. knows who it is. But I think yeah, you asked a good question about like at what point do you what's our responsibility when you know the consequences of what's gonna happen? You know? Yeah, I mean this was a little thing, honestly, like I said, I don't have a lot of experience, but it it's makes me think about it a little bit more and i know you had mentioned the hate you give and Mm -hmm. i think that was one of my first experiences with i think the i don't know if the book does but the movie opens with like the talk they have with their kids about what what yeah what you do Mm -hmm. if you are pulled over have you had that talk eli no no so i i mean (laughs) that is not something in my world that we have a talk about and i wouldn't think of honestly having that talk with my kids even Mm -hmm. and so i think that's um sort of shaken my world so i mean i mean 
take what I say for what, what I'm trying to go for. So, yeah. I, like, I, I had a version of the talk given to me when I was a kid, and it was like, my dad was a coal miner, and it was about us being poor. Mm. And, like, mm. and it was like... Being taken advantage? Well, no, it, no, it was like, if you go somewhere where you're applying for an interview or you ever get in trouble, mm-hmm. you put on a suit and you look your best. Mm. And if you're in a position when someone has power over you right. and they're treating you poorly, you shut up and you be as be nicer to that person than you can be to anyone else. Mm. You don't complain. Mm-hmm. You don't fight back. Mm-hmm. You do exactly you, you do exactly what they ask you to. Right. Um, which is not is not the same. It's not. But like but like when I started to like become an activist when I was in college, mm. I had to go through all. I mean, I'm not. I mean, like that was the, one of the things that stood in my way because it's like we don't complain, right? You you don't. If there's people that are in charge of stuff, the police, you right. don't fight them, right? You're scared of them. Right. They mess you up, right? Mm-hmm. And it's different because I'm white, you know, and it, mm-hmm. it's a smaller version of it. But it, it's, it, it allows me, like my connection to the speech is like talking to other people I know who have kids who are black, who have given their kids mm-hmm. the speech. And, mm-hmm. and I, I relate to it more as, a, as like hearing other people tell the story. Because right. I mean, like one really good friend of mine in college, I mean, it was like, Part of what made, you know, this father so sad was that, like, in 1987, he, you know, he's given this speech to his kid, you know, and he's like, he'd come to America. He's like, right. I didn't think, you know, in 1965 that I was going to be giving my son the speech in 1985 or right. 1987, yeah. 1989. He's mm-hmm. like, I didn't think that the same things that mm-hmm. my father told me about that I was worried about. 20 years ago right. was going to be exactly the same for my son. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's interesting, so I'm biracial. So I grew up with my mom, who's white, and my mom um, got married to my stepdad, who's also white. So I actually didn't get the speech from my mom. I got it from my friends when... So like I hadn't even really been around black people, which is kind of interesting, until I was almost 11 or 12. And I didn't even really know I was black until I was nine. Um, which is also really interesting. Like I was, I knew I was different, but I didn't really understand that you, I was being treated differently and people didn't want to be my friend because I was black. I found out from a girl named Hannah playing kickball (laughs) that that's why no one was friends with me. Um, mind you, I'm pretty light skinned and I was the second darkest kid in my school. (laughs) I went to a private school at that point, but I'd gotten the talk from my friends probably when I was around like 14 or 15 who were black, who were from the inner city and actually had to like teach basically did the talk with me of like for for me to understand and part of it too is like if i'm around people are like you have to be ready so you know thinking about that and that that movie and then reflecting on kind of how it like i'd always kept my hand somewhere like very like still in a car but even just this summer like i was sitting there (laughs) i was sitting there actually smoking a black and mild when we got pulled over, because my, it's my natural instinct to, like, calm down at that point in time. <laughs> and he, at one point, my friend looked at me and was like, you're just so nonchalant. And I was like, like, I had one hand, but I would kept my other hand out the window as I was, like, smoking in and out because I knew he could see me. But I was mm. just thinking, like, you're right. Like, I actually, like, got the talk. But at some point, like, I really can function to some capacity not having that view. Mm. Um but knowing that, like, potentially if I ever have kids, they're more than likely going to be black. Mm-hmm. So, like, having to know, like, I'm going to have to have that talk. But realizing that, like, that's, like, a normal, like, that's something that's normally given. Or, like, the fact that you have to keep reiterating that. Like, 
when the boys got pulled over, I had asked them, like, when they, with the whole, where were your hands at? Where were mm-hmm. you at? Did you, like, what did you do? How did you interact? Did you talk back to them? And actually, one of the boys said he kind of, like, went at one of the police officers because he really didn't understand why they it's were hard. going. Yeah. And I had to remind them, like, you got lucky that time, but you never know. Like, what if there's a rookie cop who just doesn't know what to do with that? Um, that has probably been one of my, that's been getting pulled over by a rookie cop. That is not fun. It's mm. no, it's one of the scariest things because you never know what they're going to do because they're like new at their job and you mm. wonder if they're going to like puff up. But yeah, when you talk about like the talk, yeah, it's definitely something. And I've had to actually tell my friends who interact with the boys for them to understand what it's going to be like if they ever have police interaction with the boys. If something happens or we have to go deal with something for them to understand how to operate, even though they're white, but understanding like you have this privilege that you can leverage, but like be careful how much you use it because it also is going to remind them of how much they don't have. Mm. Um, And that's definitely like, that's been an ongoing conversation through like kind of blending two worlds of these kids that like most people term at risk. Um, We at Train to Grow don't like to say that. We like to (laughs) say uh, talent concealed youth, which means it's generally kids that don't have have never been presented with the opportunity, don't really understand what their talents are to actually understand how they can operate and utilize them. It's not mm. that they're these broken kids who are just out to be criminals. Like, really, they just have been handed a really, really bad hand, and they're trying to operate within that and have never been presented with that. But to explain to them what it looks like with my friends and a lot of my friends who go to an upper-middle-class white church, like, your expectations are can't be what they are for these kids for the simple fact that like they grew up being taught something different and like while you expect them to be like prim and proper and know what to do and not do this and not do that like they've never operated within that and to be honest they've been raised to just like love themselves so that they can actually live their life Mm -hmm. um but trying to blend two worlds together and, and really you start to realize that a lot of these things that you talk about with um this like white this white power in some ways with the judicial system or never having to really think about the talk or Mm -hmm. what that looks like. Um, You realize that a lot of other people, when you're trying to take two worlds and combine them together, have literally been built in some capacity to never understand the other side or just not have sympathy for it. You know, like not not have an understanding that like none of these boys want to get shot. Really, what mm-hmm. they like to do is take a Saturday night and play Uno. Yeah, yeah. Like, play Speak Out. If you've ever played, that is the funniest game if you've not played <laughs> it. But, like, that's what they want to do. Sit around and do yeah. chill things. Like, they don't they don't want to be out here having to figure out how they're going to get food or how to just, like, be okay. Like, mm-hmm. and you have everyone else who's coming and being like, I've been, I've had this my whole life. I've never had to think about this. I cannot watch When They See Us, They Hate You Give, Dear White People, and never have to think about that world. I can operate completely as if none of this exists. And that's really what we're doing. And that's why the problem is still here. Is because many people who have the power and privilege to do something about it don't because they don't have to. Yeah. And they get to just escape either. it. No, it's like mm-hmm. if it doesn't if it doesn't hurt you, it's like, oh no, all these all these kids are terrible. They're all like all these They all deserve pe- it. Like these people just these justice. people. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just justice. And it's like, okay, but there's a difference when you have like people who are going and being incarcerated, like a friend of mine who got nine years in prison for robbing a drug dealer. And 
he's he was 18 in black like come on there's mm-hmm. that there's no way that would have happened in our city if it was a white kid you know, like we watched another case where it was a white guy and a black guy. Both of them were co-conspirators in a crime. They had told the white kid, oh, you know what? You're good. You're not going to you're not going to spend any time. They gave the black kid nine months. But then they were like, oh, actually, because we don't want to seem racist, we're going to give you nine months. And, and you're both going to have it instead of just being like, you know, what? we're going to give you both no time. Like, that's not mm-hmm. what we're doing. And people have to understand the system is like as we're asking things, it's not that we're going to start treating black people with less time we're just going to give white people more time we're not going to actually make the system fair Mm -hmm. it's going to keep operating the same way it's just going to get worse and i think until it gets worse enough and i think bad enough for white people in our community we're going to have the same problems probably for a really long time yeah yeah not to like minimize uh what those guys went through or anything but to think about like how we're talking about kind of telling stories on this podcast sometimes right and telling them through film or tv too sure but i think this really points to the power of narrative and we talked about how these police basically like created this story for what happened right Mm -hmm. um even if it didn't line up totally i think we saw in that in the court ultimately that was a more convincing story for the people listening Right, even but that's it, what it's all about. Are, that's it's all, who that's can tell the about, best story. Right? That's and the so and um, hearing from Yusef Salam, what he said too is so the documentary. So they were actually exonerated, and I think he said around two thousand three. Yeah, the documentary didn't come out until like two thousand twelve, and he said even after they exonerated, he still didn't feel comfortable in society no. in the way people viewed him. The most people still saw him as somebody who went to prison who committed mm-hmm. a crime, mm-hmm. who they didn't necessarily believe was innocent of right. this crime. And so he said the power of that was that in some ways it gave them back their voice. And he said even up until the uh, this miniseries, When They See Us, right. also has continued that process. And I think that's some some of the power of the title of it too, right? of when they actually see us for mm-hmm. who we are. But I mean, I can't imagine that people basically didn't believe his version of the story, even for almost decades after coming out of prison and being exonerated, like people still didn't believe that. And I think that's what we're seeing is that's still the dominant story in our culture is that these young black boys, you know, if they were doing something slightly suspicious, right. they probably were, right? They probably it, did something wrong. They must right? have done something they wrong. They must have did something, yeah. Well, and even... Because that's who I mean, those people like, are, right? I yeah. mean, what that means to me, hearing it so many times in my life, mm-hmm. is just like, we can just lock them up because they're black. I mean, like, because I just heard yeah, it. I've heard their it skin so, is a weapon. so many yeah, yeah, times about yeah. so many right. different people. But it's the same story over and over again. That I'm like, right. do you? How can you not see? Or maybe, you, mm-hmm. maybe you do see, and it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. But it's like black people do commit crimes. So do white people. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's not a difference. Like yeah. we've we've shown there's not a difference, and that was part of the reason I really wanted to kind of do something radical, which a lot of people I got some flack back for, which is getting a lot of these teenage boys to interact with a bunch of my white friends, and I was like, I want them, I want my friends to see these kids as kids i want them to see that like these things that you've heard in the news about these young black boys going around doing all these things like that is like you need to see them as people and it's funny because like all of my friends are like i just don't 
I, I see them as kids. I see mm-hmm. them as like a bunch of young kids who just like to hang out and laugh and be funny and be goofy. And it's also, I think, been kind of healing for some of the boys to be like, wow, these white people really just see us as people. Like they see us as mm-hmm. humans, as people who just like are living our lives. And I think that for me, I guess I didn't really think it was going to be that easy. But you start to realize like when you give people their intrinsic value of just like you're human, you are beautiful and you deserve to be loved. You realize that people start to take a different stance on how they view people. And even the way that my friends have grown in how they interact, a bunch of my friends came to the use of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of them have been to some of the dinners that the boys have been at where we reserve dinner and play games. And mm-hmm. that was definitely a takeaway for a lot of them is like, this was really good to just realize that like, this is this could be something that all of us may have to deal with and we're praying that none of us have to. But also just being like, yeah, these kids are just kids. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. when kids are bored, they do stupid stuff. And mm-hmm. I think that when we start realizing that teenagers aren't as smart as <laughs> we try and give them They're credit for, mature, yeah. yeah, like they yeah. just make dumb decisions sometimes just to do it. But I think that's the thing too, is like even if they're cussing or doing something that might seem kind of off, like at the end of the day, like, they like interacting with the world the rest the way the rest of us like mm-hmm. do. It doesn't right. make them any different. It just means they were dealt a different hand and they've been trying to process through it. Like as I got involved in with Train to Grow and doing the consulting with with Felix, I've really learned that like that's been his biggest motto is like how do we give kids opportunities that have never had them and just watch them flourish? How do we get them to interact in places they've never been and then just see like this is who you can be? And how do we get other people to interact with them and see them as like, this is who they are. Like, ignore the news, ignore the narrative, ignore the stories that you've heard, mm-hmm. meet them where they're at and tell me that you think that they're these evil people who are out to like ruin people's lives. Like, mm-hmm. tell me that's what you hear. Yeah. And the reality is, is like, no one has seen that. No mm-hmm. one has come back to me and been like, oh, I don't want it. They're like, when's the next time that like, they're doing something with these kids like when's the next time that we're having a dinner when's the next time we get to do that and it kind of it's been really emotional for me to like really just see something that like the rest of the world goes this isn't possible and I'm watching it happen and I'm watching people get excited and like watch these kids be like who else is coming who else is gonna be there (laughs) not thinking that they would have had any interest in playing card games with a bunch Mm -hmm. of random people that they've never met that are so different than them but my friends have introduced them to donut sundays if you've never had them you should try them i don't know what that is uh you go to Greenbush, you get a donut and then you get ice cream with whipped cream and sprinkles (laughs) and any other random candy and and well yeah and then you have and then we've had the boys introduce them to like just put the ice cream on the donut and eat them together? No. Yes. Okay. Just like, it's amazing. And um, is there a specification about whether it's like one of the cake donuts? Or just, <laughs> uh, just, just I think donut? we had a variety of donuts okay. and whatever happened. Um, we've also done s'mores in the living room, which is really fun. We just, I don't know, just something different, I think. So like when you, when I see the show, when they see us, like the whole time, all I kept thinking is these are kids. Yeah. And like, as long as we view them as like kids and people with dignity, like I think it would change the way that we interact with people in the way they come through our system and they come through the the criminal justice system which is not justice but whatever we we would view them differently yeah um i mean what jeremy said about 
how it showed at the beginning a little bit of their lives before this incident yeah. happened. Right. Like you, I think it did a good job of saying they have all this potential waiting well, in their lives. I, I mean, and then that sort of all gets like squashed. Right? True. True. Yeah. Just, there's like, also, no, there's yeah. also this thing where like, I mean, I have some friends uh, who have got to jail. And I right. mean, the, 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 the thing that, that people say, and that a friend of mine said to me and that I've heard a bunch of times, which is totally true, is like, usually the day you get arrested for something, if you did something wrong, it might be the shittiest day of your life. It is. Like, you know, and I mean, it, it might have been that before you got arrested. This might be right. the worst thing you've ever done, <laughs> right? And if you judge any of us on our worst day, yeah. Yeah, yeah. like, yeah. we all look terrible. Like, well, we've, <laughs> we've all done some pretty terrible things, probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. and maybe right. even mean to do them. And so there's, but the, the thing that gets me, like, I, it's really inspirational to see uh, to hear Yusuf talk, to see what these guys have done with right. their lives afterwards. But there's this this part of me that gets super pissed <laughs> because it's like, as white people, as our as our culture, we're like a little more okay with them because they did do time. Because that's what is supposed to happen to black people, right? right. They're supposed to be mm-hmm. wild, crazy teenagers, go to prison for like 10, 15 years, and then come out like a little smoother on the other side. Right. It Which is, doesn't is, happen is, as often as you think. I mean, people, there's destruction that happens when you get incarcerated. And I don't yeah. think we talk enough about that. Like, there's hard wiring that does not, that you can't undo. I think unless someone has really spent time incarcerated, like, there's something that happens to you as a human being. And you will never be the same after it. I mean... Like, having someone who you've never known looking at your body, like, we are having people going and getting sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. Like, in prison. Like, that mm-hmm. is happening on the regular. Like, you have people who are, who tons of people have seen them naked. Like, these things that are supposed to be intimate, your own, like, your own body. And, like, right. those things are taken away from you. Like, you are conditioned to follow all these rules. And then you're you get out. And, like... I will tell you the shock that comes from a man when I've had to have someone in my office who's fresh out of prison. That is one of, it is one of the saddest things I've seen because it's like, I've been locked up for 12 years and now they have all these different things and I don't know what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to start, where I'm going to live, how I'm going to live, who am I going to live with, if I have kids, what's going to happen to them. I think we don't really think about we try and justify locking people up because we think it makes people better instead of just trying to figure out like, well, how'd they get here in the first place? Well, you know, how did they get to this point? Mm-hmm. And two, like, how does it make them different? I think that was something you said that made me think of something of like, the difference between most people who've been a crush and those who haven't is you didn't get caught for whatever shit you done did. Right, right, it's right, right. just that simple. Like you didn't right. get caught for a DUI you should have gotten caught for. You or you didn't, you got out of it. You didn't get caught for whatever you stole at some point, whatever speeding ticket, whatever reckless thing that you probably shouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. You didn't get caught for it. Like to sit here and think like the difference between someone is like they've been incarcerated or not. And the reality is, is like that's not a fair way to judge people. And because a lot of the time, once you get in, get on probation or parole, you're not getting out of it. And you're going to be consistently like your life is going to be turned upside down constantly, which they talked about on the show too is like. Probation is n- normal, law-abiding citizens cannot, like, pass probation. Like, it is yeah. meant for you to fail. Yeah. So, like, when you guys are sitting here talking about a lot of it, it's just like, yeah, the system 
we don't we try and justify that like a lot of this is okay and we can kind of feel good and like this is a really good tv series and it's like cory booker is his life is radically different you look at how that kid went in there and you watch how he came out like mm-hmm. there's nothing that can undo what he went through and I don't feel good about it. I don't care that he's got his own business. He's done all these things. Like, at the end of the night, when no one else is there, you can't sit here and tell me those things don't go through his mind and won't go through his mind for the rest of his life. And what they have done to him as a human being, like, you can't undo that. You... I, I mean, I agree. And one of the things that, I don't know, prison is designed to be punishment. And, 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 <laughs> I mean, and is I know that what that... they told you? Well, I mean, or like, I mean, like, I, I was told, I mean, like, the, what we learn in civics class, is it like, you know, it keeps people away from the general public, so they're not harming them, it's, I don't know, but like, but what, all the things that I learn about prisons in the news, that I learn about prisons in the stories, they are, can be terrible, cruel places, and we don't give a shit, right? No. And we're like, you know, I mean, and, and, it, and it takes, like, here in Wisconsin with the juvenile detention center, like, there are places, places in yeah. New York, stories that I've read for years, it's like places, <laughs> yeah, places terrible. People are being treated horribly, not even meeting their own standards. And we're like, well, who knows? Mm, gosh, and, you know, and just hemming and hawing about it for forever. I'm like, this is an, unac- I mean, it's an unacceptable way to treat anyone. And the only reason we're okay with it is because most of the people who are making decisions about it never have any fear that they're going to end up there. Never have any fear that anyone near them is going to be part of that system. Well, I think it's that, and I think it's that we try and use consequences of people and what they've done like they deserve it. And I think that's the problem. It's like we've become a revengeful, wrathful society instead of being like, how is this going to help? How is putting someone in a cage at the age of 18 until they're 20, 25, 30, 35, 50... How is that going to do anything? Because we don't want to. We don't want to give them education. We don't, we literally want to freeze them in time. And then you wonder why you have these men who are coming out of prison who still think like children because they've not been able to grow in the ways that they should have. Or we are like, oh well, they've done. We've had a lot of success, or we haven't had recidivism, and we try and justify all these things. Like, I don't think there's something Aaron who I work with, Aaron Hicks. He's great. He has this quote where he goes, I wonder when we're going to start asking the question, like, how do we think we're not going to create monsters when we lock people up in cages? Mm -hmm. Like, we're creating monsters, and then we're getting upset, and we're lying to ourselves that all these things are working. Like, we're creating all these fear, like, fears that are just unreasonable. Like, we've talked a lot about it, Nehemiah, about, like, the sex offender registry and how that has created this ultimate fear of people. And the reality is, is a lot of the people who are on that were 18 or 19 with their high school girlfriend. Most of the people, and most of the people, are going to get out. Mm. Like, most of the people that people are worried about that are red dots are, like, normal people who just, like, something happened. And, like, but what's written on a piece of paper is always significantly worse a lot of the time than what actually happened. I mean, I had a guy who wouldn't report who his inmate was raped by and got put on lifetime registry. Like, that's insane. He didn't even assault anyone, and he got put on for sexual assault of another person because he wouldn't snitch, which no one snitches in jail unless you're stupid. No offense. (laughs) Like, everyone knows that. You just don't do that. Like, that's the risk of that, of then getting out on the outside and, like, not having to feel like someone's watching you and going to kill you at any moment. Like, people just don't do that. So I think 
Yeah, I think you bring up a great point of like, at what point do we start asking the question of like, what's really going to be done? Because the reality is, is it's not like it's the one loophole in our system is like once people are criminals, they no longer have any choice. I mean, a lot of people don't get to vote. You don't get to have a firearm, even if it's nothing related to your crime. You don't get to do, I mean, in the state of Wisconsin, there's about 750 things that people who have felonies are not allowed to do. And I would say that most of them have nothing to do with the crime they committed. You know, and I think that's a question of like, at what point do we think that there's this punishment that actually is really working? Because it's not. We have the highest rate of incarceration among anyone, and we're not seeing any more success Mm -hmm. than any other country. Like, nothing's changed. All we're doing is creating broken people who are creating more broken people. And then we're wondering, like, oh, I wonder why this isn't working. Well, it's really simple. If you don't know how to heal... I say this a lot to a lot of my friends who have a lot of problems with people who have been incarcerated, and I go... No one wakes up one day and decides to shoot someone. There's a million steps, a million steps that happen before that. It was something happens time after time after time. And you slowly like walk down the path. You don't just Mm -hmm. like jump. You don't get in a car like and drive like people take a step by step. And that's how they end up there. And we have to figure out how do we start healing the brokenness in people's past to actually start some point where people can actually function like Mm -hmm. We haven't figured that out yet. We think that rehab is being nice. We think that all these things are not being harsh enough. And don't get me wrong. There are some people who should be locked up. Like there are just some people who just (laughs) are not good people who've done terrible, terrible things who do deserve to be locked up. But it begs a question of like with everybody else who's going to get out, Mm -hmm. everybody else who doesn't need to be incarcerated and really just needs actual help. What are we going to do for that? One of the things that you probably encounter this a lot. I mean, a, a friend of mine and a teammate got himself into a little bit of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, ended up being charged with of like a. I mean, you've seen like a, a charged with a variety of things. A couple misdemeanors, a couple felonies in there, a bunch yeah, of stuff. He, they he, usually stack them. Yeah, um, but he was, um, you know, like charged with, you know, it was like the shotgun approach, a bunch of stuff. Sure. He, he ended up being going out on a, a very small amount of bail. Was around people that got in trouble. I, whatever. I, I don't know mm-hmm. if he was doing something bad or not. Sure. But then Association. He, so then he gets, then he book, he like, before he even goes to trial, like gets charged with an entirely new round of crimes mm-hmm. and gets labeled a felon at that point mm-hmm. because he violated bail for a felony, which may or may not have ever been, he, he probably sure. wasn't even going to go to court for it. Because mm-hmm. it was like, a, you know, like it was going to be dropped in the process. And so like he's then in, moved right. to a prison a uh-huh. not jail but a prison because of like stuff before the trial even started and yeah. i mean like he's a complicated kid but like he can't navigate that nonsense and i mean like how is i mean it there's all variety of status like these status offenses it just feels like it was yeah i watched him like get one foot in and then just get totally swept up in a net of yeah. all kinds of stuff well that's the goal they want to take you down mm-hmm. i mean that is like I'm, I'm watching it happen to one of my one of my kids where it's like he caught one charge and all of a sudden they're coming up with another one. And literally he got a second charge because one person said he was driving a vehicle. And I'm like, okay. But like really that's what they do is they want to hit you with a bunch of it because eventually they want you to plead out to something. Mm-hmm. That's what they want. Right. They want to plead out. I mean, they don't want to. Well, I, and they I, do whatever they can to get it there. When I was living in New Hampshire, um, like they prosecuted only 
2% of all of the cases because that is uh, that were brought against folks. So that's all they could afford to do. The yeah. re- remaining 98% was all plea deals. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the statistics. It's 97% of cases that go are going to go to plea. And the reality is, is the system has more money to fight you. Like, you get a public defender, you're not going to have the... Like, I mean, a lot of people don't have the capacity to go through. And what people don't understand is, like, the judges give public defenders a hard time if they actually fight their case well. Mm-hmm. So, like, you get to this point to where you realize that the system is rigged. Mm-hmm. Which goes back to the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when they see us, <laughs> right, it's built right. that way. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, they talk about a plea deal in that court case, and then... You know, I think that was rare that they didn't take it, but that, I mean, you see that in lots of stories that um, it's off there like, yeah. well, it's probably going to be, you're going to serve less time if you just do this, mm-hmm. even though you're not guilty of it, possibly, or the, all of that. I think we do have to wrap up. I think this has been a great conversation yeah. about when they say mm-hmm. Thanks for being on the show, Brittany. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing your great. stories and your experience. So thanks for listening, and we'll bring you more stories next time. <laughs>